This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Why is State Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky saying the things he's saying? And will he keep saying them? My answer is, for his sake and the sake of the Senate Republican Caucus and the Michigan Republican Party, they had all better hope he puts a sock in it. Loose lips sink ships. And Shirky has proven to be inept as a spokesman for his caucus and for the GOP legislative agenda vis-a-vis Governor Gretchen Whitmer. It's not so much what he says in disagreement with the governor on policy, particularly as it relates to her handling of the coronavirus pandemic. It's what he says when he thinks he's off the record or in private conversations or speaking to Hillsdale college groups on campus in his district or embellishing his opening prayer remarks with comments to Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist into a hot mic, which was quickly replicated on the Internet and went viral. He fails to understand that in the age of Twitter and iPhone videos, you can't talk the way your predecessors did 10 or 20 years ago. He doesn't seem to grasp that damage to his image and reputation does damage also to his ability to advocate and negotiate with his fellow legislators and with the governor, even if it's on a completely different subject. The news media lies in wait for Shirky's next gaffe. He can't talk about the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol as a hoax or call legislative Democrats' ideas, quote, on the batch edge of the spectrum, unquote, or say he banked, quote-unquote, the governor without its affecting his credibility and authority to determine what the state budget should be. Seven or eight years ago, when he was still a member of the state house, Shirky was considered a rising star, not only in the legislature, but in the state Republican Party. He was a key figure in helping Governor Rick Snyder cobble together Healthy Michigan, the Michigan component of Obamacare, in a sharply divided chamber. He was hailed in the news media, and he was easily elected to the state Senate, then elevated the leadership role two years ago. Since then, however, it's been a rocky road. The two speakers of the House Shirky has served with, Lee Chatfield and now Jason Wentworth, have proved far more circumspect and adept in expressing themselves and staking out their positions in a credible way without getting sidetracked by making gratuitous comments on subjects over which they have little influence, as Shirky has. Even Thomas Albert, the new chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, has shown he can take strong positions and state them forcefully and be very critical of the governor in a far more focused and articulate way than Shirky. Shirky is personably likable. Even Democratic State Senator Curtis Hertel Jr. says he considers Shirky a personal friend. And so far, the Senate Republican Caucus seems to have Shirky's back. But can that last if Shirky's behavior persists? 
The last time one of the caucuses, either Democratic or Republican, either House or Senate, unhorsed a speaker or majority leader in the middle of his term was way back in 1977 when the majority Senate Democrats defrocked Bill Fitzgerald and replaced him with Bill Faust. Could that happen again? If not, will Shirky's verbal gaffes cost Republicans at the ballot box next year? Will his undisciplined tongue allow Governor Gretchen Whitmer to score victories that will ripple on down the ballot and sweep most Republicans out of office? If Shirky can get a grip and put a stop to his blunders now, reposition himself and deliver the goods on policy in a positive way, maybe his party will dodge the bullet. But if Shirky continues on his disastrous course, it may cost his party in 2022. Remember, Shirky himself is term limited. He can't run again. And nobody knows what the new district lines are going to look like after the new apportionment commission completes its work. Democrats believe the new maps for the state house, Senate, and Congress are going to look a lot better for them than the ones in place the past two decades. Republicans have held the majority in the Senate for a phenomenal 37 straight years, but they may be hard-pressed to keep that streak going next year with new districts, a carload of open seats, and new maps, especially if Gretchen Whitmer rides roughshod over the GOP gubernatorial nominee. And by the way, who will that be? There's no George Romney or John Engler or even Rick Snyder in sight, and Mike Shirky has probably already removed himself from the running, even if he didn't intend that. Who else will even want the nomination? Are there other questions that could be answered? Yes. Why did the governor switch her position on school sports? My answer would be she would say she didn't, just that she moved the start date up based on the science. Remember, this governor does not admit mistakes and insists that she will not be, quote, bullied, unquote, a self-description I've never heard any other governor use because they didn't see the need to. As time goes on, it becomes more and more clear that the science the governor uses on COVID-19 is flawed or her interpretation of it is. Hers is a very subjective definition of the word. Another question. Former Michigan Republican Party Chair Laura Cox accused Ron Weiser, her successor, of paying a Macomb County Township clerk, Stan Grott, to get out of the race for Secretary of State in 2018. How, if at all, might that hurt the state GOP? My answer would be it's hurting it right now. The only question is whether it's a blip that will go away, or whether it remains an issue deep into 2022, which is an election year. Chairman Weiser must realize he's got to put this controversy behind the Michigan Republican Party sooner rather than later. Here's another question. According to recent polling, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has a 48% positive rating, 38% negative job approval rating, which is better than Attorney General Dana Nessel's 
43 approval, 38 disapproval rating. Is that surprising considering all the accusations of cheating that Republicans have made about the 2020 presidential election? I would say Benson's numbers relative to Nestle's are about what they were two years ago when the two of them were elected. Benson defeated her Republican opponent by more than Nestle beat hers. Both women have declined somewhat in popularity, as might be expected during the tumultuous two years we have just experienced. Neither will ever be as popular as, let's say, Richard Austin or Frank Kelly. That being said, you don't beat something with nothing, and the Republicans will have to produce nominees for both Attorney General and Secretary of State next year who are not only capable and credible, but have some name ID and campaign cash. They're going to need all of that. Lastly, will passing the state budget go as smoothly this year as it did in 2020? My answer would be probably not, but much depends on how much more COVID-19 relief aid comes from Washington, D.C. That's what saved the governor and legislature last year. However... Even if more money is forthcoming from Washington, majority Republicans in the legislature have really got their backs up now, as has been demonstrated with their rejection of gubernatorial appointees and their passage of COVID-19 supplemental appropriation at odds with Whitmer's request. New House Speaker Jason Wentworth sounds like he's ready to play hardball. We may be in for a very bumpy ride. I'm going to be back in a minute with the first of three guests, all of whom are very different from each other. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us State Senator Michael D. McDonald. He's a Republican of Sterling Heights. He represents the 10th Senate District. Thanks for being our guest, Senator McDonald. Oh, Bill, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Okay, look, we've got very little time, maybe nine or ten minutes, just to get through a lot of stuff. But let me just start and ask you, what is your reaction to the governor's State of the State message and her budget that she just came out with this week? Well, with with her message um, on the state of the state, it it was an attempt to be positive and and to bring unity, and I'm all for that. I'm I'm about at the point where I just want to get something done for the state. (laughs) I mean, that's a reasonable thought. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get it done. Let's get some positive things. Get some wins for the state of Michigan. I'm um, I'm all for that. That's the theme of the speech. So let's do it. And then, um, you know. With, with the COVID situation, I certainly hope that her relationship with Washington is going to be beneficial to us, you know. Sure. I mean, uh, that, that, I mean absolutely. You know, I yeah. certainly hope so, so sure. let's get that done, too. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about some legislation that you reintroduced. I think you put it in in the previous session and or one or more of your colleagues did as well. First, like opioid abuse education. What's that about? Right. So in Macomb County, there's an organization, Families Against Narcotics, an amazing group. Um, The the opioid epidemic in this county and in in pretty much every county in the state, and let's just say every state in the country, has become 
even worse under the COVID. Um, I personally, in 2010, had uh, one of my great friends, uh, Chris Boyers, who died of a drug overdose. So this has always been very passionate to me. I, I want to get education to the kids. This would require them to watch um, an educational video in ninth grade. And um, I, I, with the support of FAN and uh, with the help of FAN, I think this would be very beneficial because this affects athletes, too. Um, and it, this is only getting worse, so hopefully this will get through and we can make sure this, this epidemic uh, doesn't continue to rise like it's been. You think you have a good chance to get it passed? Yeah, I don't know who's – why would you be against this? I mean, this is about educating kids in something that's only getting worse, uh, this uh, opioid and these drug overdoses. Yeah. Okay. This you... is all positive, and, and we work with the, the um, Sterling Heights police with this, too, and this is, this is just good for the community. Okay. What about your animal protection bills? Well, that came from not only my love of animals, but particularly dogs, but from an incident specifically that happened in Macomb County, um, Sterling the dog. Uh, it was just horrific what this guy did to this dog. But the problem uh, was more so that his friend was able to procure the dog for him to do this. So this would prevent that from happening in the, in the future. You can't, uh, what, procure a dog for well, what turns out to be a nefarious purpose? Yeah, this guy was a red flag from day one. They knew he was going to He fixated on killing this dog. So he worked around it, and he got his friend to get the dog for him so he can kill it. And what we want to do is prevent something like that from happening in, in the future, kind of like with with, um, with drugs. You know, if, if somebody um, can't get it themselves, they get somebody else to get it for them. That person who got the drugs should be held accountable as well. And in this case, that person was not held accountable for getting that dog for him. Yeah, I think you're co-sponsoring it with uh, Paul Wojno, who's a Democratic state senator from Warren. Is that correct? Yep, that is correct. Yeah, Macomb County is a, uh, we, lo- we love our, our dogs and our animals here. Yeah. Uh, what about your uh, fix the damn roads over there in Macomb County? I know uh, Peter Lucido, your former colleague who just had to uh, resign uh, because he'd just been elected Macomb County prosecuting attorney, so he's gone. There's a vacancy in the district uh, next to you, but... Uh, he had a bill that would allow local counties to keep their uh, road tax, gas tax revenue within the county. I don't know whether that is what you've introduced, but you've introduced something, uh, maybe also with uh, Senator Wojno as a co-sponsor, based on trying to beef up your fix-the-damn-road funding in Macomb County. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, first off, congratulations to Pete on, on uh, taking that position. Uh, he got the ball rolling on this, and I'm hoping to, to uh, finish running the bases here and getting this back to Macomb. Macomb is a donor county. We, we by far have the worst roads in the state. It's not even close. Um, we have all this, this traffic impacting our roads, but we're not getting our fair share here. So uh, what I'm hoping to do that maybe my predecessors uh, did not do is I'm hoping with my standing and, you know, with my colleagues to really, really try to be a statesman about this and get them to understand that this would be very helpful to Macomb to be able to pass something like this. You know, I mean, whether it's helpful to them specifically, they have to understand the situation that I'm dealing with with my constituents here in Macomb County. Our roads are very, very bad. 
and we've been helping out all the other areas of the state for a long time. And all I want to do is work with my colleagues to get some of this back to Macomb County. Yeah, what what about, uh, this is another subject still, you're involved in so many things, I can't believe it, Senator Michael D. McDonald. Uh, we talked about it with you on this program before, this Northern Michigan Air Command Enterprise, and there was something that happened on that recently, wasn't there? What's going on with that? Bill, you know, this is getting attention all over the country and even internationally, what we're doing here in Michigan. Uh, yeah, I brought this up to you a long time ago, so you're one of the first people to even hear about it. But, yeah, we've now chosen a command center. So we have a vertical site in Marquette, a horizontal in Otscota, and now we have a command center at uh, CIU, Chippewa. Um, pretty much every area of the state is going to be a, a component of this. But the big key here now is with the America First agenda from both parties, both Democrat and Republican, we are in a battle internationally for control of the space economy. And Michigan is poised with this initiative to take the lead for the country in, in getting the satellites up there first and in, in, um, capturing the 5G, capturing the connectivity that is going to drive the economy in the world for the next 30 years. So because of our geography, because of our manufacturing base, because of our academic institutions, we have pretty much centered Michigan as the not only the arsenal of innovation, but the space harbor that works with the space coast. And then a component that you're going to hear about that's going to be the crescendo of this for that's relevant to my area is this is going to we have an interstate collaborative now of Florida, California, Texas, Arizona. Um, Michigan is poised to take the lead on 5G for the country. And this is something that Donald Trump talked about before he left office. This is something that the Democrats have talked about as they've gotten into office. This is going to be very critical to the world economy. And I'm hoping Michigan takes the lead. This is what I told the Pentagon I was going to do two years ago. And I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C. and let them know that we're well on our way to do it. What needs to happen next? Uh, Buy-in. I want, I want to make sure there's buy-in from all the stakeholders in Michigan. Um, we want to make sure that not necessarily we rebrand completely, but we make our brand something that is the, the innovation center, the technology center, the economic center. I just want buy-in from everybody so we can work together to make it happen. Well, I sure hope you pull it off. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's worth the effort. Uh, You're doing everything you can, and you've been the leader on this from the very beginning. State Senator Michael D. McDonald, Republican of Sterling Heights, representing the 10th Senate District. Thank you so much, Senator McDonald. Bill, thank you, as always. We'll get you back again, and stay tuned. We've got another guest coming up. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Brant Iden, a former three-term state representative from Ashtamo Township down in the Kalamazoo area, who was the chief mover and shaker in enacting sports betting over the last couple of years. Now he's in the private sector and I want to ask him a bunch of questions about that. Brent Iden, thanks for being our guest. Hey, good morning, Bill. It's great to be back on with you. Okay, I want to ask you, uh, first of all, uh, did you know Tom Brady was going to pull this off? Did you bet on the Super Bowl? <laughs> two, two different questions there. First off, 
<laughs> Unfortunately, in my new role, I can no longer wager, which I'm disappointed about because oh. uh, I was I was a I was a sports gambler until my new position, which I know we're going to talk about. But I will tell you that I absolutely supported Tom Brady, a former Michigan kid, and uh, just getting it done for seven times. And you know what? He's got one more year with Tampa Bay, and I think he's going to go for one more. <laughs> Forty-four years old. <laughs> Well, you know, my favorite bet that I read about was 15 to 1 odds on Patrick Mahomes not throwing a single TD pass in the game. 15 to 1 odds and somebody bet 3000 bucks on that, so they won $45,000. I I only I, read about one example of that. I don't know if you know about more. I, you know what? I had heard about that as well when I read about that one. I can't believe anybody bet Mahomes not score a touchdown. I would have never guessed that would have happened. But hey, good for that. Good for that guy. That's a big win. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's ask you at this point what is your job? What are you doing now? And you can't even bet anymore. I know, I know. So I'm the uh, head of government affairs uh, for the U.S. for a company called Sport Radar. And we're a really cool company, uh, I will tell you. Um, we provide sports data, and so basically we, we're the folks, when, whenever you hear, uh, so you were watching the game and you heard Joe Buck rolling off all those stats about Tom Brady over the course of his career and how many yards he's thrown for over the course of his career, we're the folks that provide that information. We're also the folks that provide the data which allows sports books to be able to set the lines. And so the line in the game was minus three and a half. Uh, the information that our company provides to those sports books allow them to set the lines. And so it's a really cool company. Uh, we're we're uh, about 3,000 employees around the globe, uh, and it's uh, just a really neat uh, up-and-coming uh, technology company. Yeah, minus three-and-a-half means uh, Tampa Bay was a three-and-a-half-point underdog to Kansas City going in this game, right? That's correct. They were getting the three-and-a-half points. That's correct. Right. Okay, well, what options are available for Michigan consumers under this new law or set of laws to place legal and regulated wagers online? Sure. So so there's twofold. There's the retail sports books where you can walk into a brick and mortar casino like the three casinos in the city of Detroit or the or the one of the 23 tribal casinos throughout the state. You can walk in the door. Those that have a retail sports book, you can place a wager there. Now, you can also get online on your uh, or through your mobile phone, through any of your devices, and download one of the many, many apps that are out there. Currently, there's about 11 that are live. Uh, some that you may know are FanDuel and DraftKings and MGM, some of the big names in the marketplace. But there are others like PointsBet and Twinspires, and I could go on. There's 11 different that are available. You can uh, log in, sign up for an account, and uh, place your wagers on your mobile devices now as well. Wow. When did the first operators go live in Michigan, and what's the total market options for consumers? So uh, the mobile platform actually went live on a championship football weekend, so back in January. So this was now about three, four weeks ago. Now the retail options have been available for um, a little bit longer than that, about six, seven months. Interestingly enough, I've, I've got some numbers here that retail sports books in Michigan – uh, so not the mobile yet. We don't have those numbers yet, but took in $35.6 million in wagers in January, and that generated 
$160,000 in taxes to the state of Michigan and $190,000 in taxes to the city of Detroit. That's just for January, just for the retail sports book. So we haven't even seen those mobile numbers yet. And I think that this is going to be a huge boon in revenue for uh, the state as well as the city of Detroit in this uh, pandemic era when, all, when every dollar counts. I think it's going to be great for the, uh, for the state. Brent Iden, since the initial launch in late January, what has been anecdotal evidence as to the Michigan market strength? Actually, it's been huge, more so than uh, was anticipated. From what I've seen uh, internally as in terms of uh, kind of what the insiders in the market are saying, Michigan's going to be one of probably the top five markets. And that's because, you know, first off, we've got the size, almost 10 million people. We've got a lot. We've got a lot of people that are interested in sports in the state. You've got the Big Ten between Michigan, Michigan State, always, obviously, the folks that bet on their alma maters when they have the opportunity. Then you've got our, you know, our our, uh, professional sports team. So we're going to be a major player in the marketplace. And I believe in the long run. Um, this is going to generate, I think, between the online. Now, remember, we're just talking sports, but there's also the online casino component where people can play blackjack, roulette, other casino-style games online. I think you're going to see, by the end of 2021, maybe $100 million in revenue to the state of Michigan. Wow. Maybe you've already answered my next question, which is, although wagering online creates a great new entertainment option for consumers, there are also these tax benefits to the state Um, and you think by the end of 2021, by the end of what this fiscal year or calendar year, you think it's going to be as much as a hundred million. I think by the end of the calendar year, uh, by the end of the calendar year. So, uh, but I, you know, I I could be off on that. I mean, we're, we are seeing greater uh, interest in this than what we even anticipated. In fact, so much so that if you were a player out there, you may have been you may have seen some of the delays or heard about some of the platforms that actually crashed because there were so many people trying to get on at once during the Super Bowl. And I know that uh, even some of the, uh, the the operators which have those platforms didn't anticipate that kind of traffic. And I know that they were able to work through some of those bugs, and, and now those are back up and running again. But, I mean, there was just such an influx of folks uh, betting during the Super Bowl and prior to the Super Bowl that, um, you know, I think it was even more so than the operators anticipated. So it's very exciting for this industry, for the state. When you say $100 million, do you think that's going to plateau or do you think it's going to continue to ratchet up, like maybe $200 million by 2025? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think it will only continue to grow as more offerings become available and more people, you know, uh, get used to get used to it. I mean, I think it's sort of like I liken it to the online lottery in Michigan. Uh, you know, that started out, that continues to grow year after year. We've seen, you know, 4 to 6% growth in the online lottery every year. I think it's just because more and more people become familiar with it, more and more people get used to doing everything online as it is anyway. And I actually think because of this, you know, pandemic era that we're in with when a lot of people are at home, they're, they're not going out as much. They may not feel as comfortable going into a casino because there's groups of people. They're going to be going to these online options more. And I think that number could probably get closer to that $200 million over a five, ten-year time frame. You think the sports betting revenue is coming out of other betting that people would otherwise be doing? Maybe it's just a transfer of money from one sort of betting to another sort of betting? Or do you think it's actually new revenue from a new option that people never have had before and you just pile it on all the other revenue that's come in from gambling, whether it's a lottery or blackjack or roulette or whatever? 
You know, I this was something that we debated uh, when we were working through the course of the legislation because we didn't want to cannibalize other markets. And I've actually always believed that this is a different type of player. This isn't a player that necessarily plays the online lottery. Folks that play the, the online lottery may not necessarily play the casino games or sports bet and vice versa. This opens up, I think, new avenues to people who are or otherwise remember probably doing this anyway. I mean, sports bettors, if you've been doing it for a while, there were many, many offshore illegal sites that you had access to. Oftentimes, people didn't even know that they were illegal. They could get online, place their wagers, and they were doing it anyway. And so this provides a regulated marketplace and allows us to capture this revenue that, frankly, we just weren't getting before and protecting these folks. I mean, you know, we're protecting people from identity theft. We're protecting people, you know, if they win, we want to make sure they get paid. Uh, and, and we're doing that through a regulated marketplace, which was all impetus for the legislation. Wow. Listen, I could ask you all sorts of further questions. It's fascinating, but you've given us a great overview of what's going on. Really appreciate your coming on and doing this for us. Grant Iden, former state representative, and now a guru in the private sector on sports betting. Thank you, Grant Iden. Thank you, Bill. Have a good day. Same to you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with a familiar voice who has been on this program before every year about this time and other times in between. He is Bob Colt, and he is CEO of Colt Communications. He's also a professor of advertising and public relations at Michigan State University. Bob Colt, thanks for being our guest. Well, it's great to be here. We always talk around Super Bowl time, and uh, this year there were no political ads, which is probably a pretty good thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that is fascinating. Uh, have you seen that over the years, that in the uh, odd year uh, when there are no big major elections uh, other than maybe special elections in various states or localities, that there are no political ads, but in election years there are political ads, or is was this year different or not? Well, it was different because we even had an absence of issue kind of stuff. The only issue-related uh, stretch would be the Jeep ad with Bruce Springsteen, you know, reunited in the middle was kind of the theme and um, it was a nice poetic ad. The professors at Michigan State University who all have expertise in a different area like production or copywriting or creativity, we rated that uh, as one of the top ads. It, it was good, except they cut off the Upper Peninsula in the map. <laughs> yeah. Apparently they don't exist. They don't sell Jeeps up there. <laughs> and, and, of course, uh, a drunk driving charge that happened some time back for Bruce Springsteen was brought up to kind of whack him. He's been very outspoken against President Trump, so the, the po- poetic nature of the ad of reuniting in the middle was kind of unusual for him. I will tell you that uh, I am kind of glad that we didn't have political Super Bowl ads. We we even do in off-election years, as you know. But I we did the count, uh, and last year in the election cycle, I watched 2,100 political ads. And <laughs> oh. my brain is completely fried. <laughs> I, but I can tell you 
who's producing the ads in some areas because a lot of them look alike. They just move around to different markets. Yeah. Well, I mean, what percentage of the ads, let's say a year ago, campaign year, were political? Would you say Super Bowl? I'm, I'm talking about Super Bowl. Well, Super Bowl, Trump had an ad, yeah. and I told you then I just thought it was a disastrous ad. It was had, had no input from the president. And the only thing uh, that he did was say, I approve this ad. And then it was just a mishmash collection of him walking and saying tough things. And it was just very not effective. Was that the only political ad last year? Well, to the best of my knowledge, I think it might have been. But, you know, the Super Bowl is a great place for politicians to advertise. Rick Snyder began his entire political campaign and um, his right. career by advertising one tough nerd in the Super Bowl. Right. He, he had no name recognition. I mean, his, his awareness was at 1%. He ran an <laughs> ad in the Super Bowl. In 2010. It, yeah, and it jumped overnight to about 9 or 10%, and it really was um, the foundation of his pol- political career because then he had a lot of money to spend elsewhere, and it worked out very successfully. We've seen some really bad ads. I remember a Pete Hoekstra ad against Debbie Stabenow that was <laughs> just – very um, racially yeah. uh, insensitive to a- Asian, Asian Americans. Americans. Yeah, remember that. Awful. Yeah. Well, you think that uh, Bruce Springsteen's ad was good, uh, one of the best ads. It was controversial, though, other than just leaving the UP off the map. Uh, a lot of people just didn't like it. Maybe, maybe they didn't like it simply because they were Trump supporters who didn't like Bruce Springsteen. They wouldn't have liked anything he did. It, it could be, but, you know— Here's the thing. Usually in a Super Bowl, if you're going to go for some emotive or emotional ad, you do that Jeep kind of ad. And in the past, we've had Clint Eastwood deliver a message for, um, I think it was Chrysler or one of the auto companies. Um, And this year, Toyota had a wonderful, inspirational ad uh, about an Olympic swimmer who, um, who had her legs amputated. And so, you know, if you can touch someone's emotion, if you can do some poetry, your ad will stand out from the political clutter. You mentioned Will Ferrell. You know, I'm not a big Will Ferrell fan, and (laughs) I was completely ready to dismiss the head, but really it was kind of cute. And, (laughs) you know, it sort of sets the stage for everything that General Motors will be doing with electric vehicles in the future. And, you know, I... I was fair enough, and he he was in our top ten. Yeah, this is where uh, he uh, dumped on Norway. He said, I hate Norway, right? <laughs> because they have more electric vehicles per capita than the United States right now, apparently. That's, that's right, and he didn't even really go to Norway. He went to Sweden, and his <laughs> friends went to Norway. And uh, it, was just, it was just cute, just a cute ad. And, um, you know, General Motors, for them, it's the message of making the transition to all electrical vehicles by a target date. So, you know, it kind of works. We saw, you know, Mike Myers and Dana Garvey uh, on, 
you know, reprising the Saturday Night Live skit, and they introduced those characters to a whole new generation of young people, because I'm sure young people watching had no idea who these guys are, and then they had token babies, and Cardi B is a celebrity, and, and you know, so... So really what we find in most Super Bowl ads, they're funny. They're not political. They're, they need to be humorous to be successful. Um, they, we want an animal, uh, you know, some sort of animation in it. Uh, that's why the Clydesdales and the puppies right. and the babies usually do so well. You, you jump out of that formula and you try to deliver a political message and Boy, it just really sounds sour in the ear, unless it's really di- done differently. And I don't think there was anything in this political environment that could have been effective anyway. Yeah, USA Today, I think, ran some kind of survey and came to the conclusion that Rocket Mortgage had the best ad of all with Tracy Morgan. I mean, do you agree with that? And what well, was that about? Yeah, they were in our our top five. I mean, Rocket Mortgage had some great funny ads and a lot of different scenes. Very cute. It was it was so great formula for what a good Super Bowl ad is. It makes you smile. You remember um, who the sponsor is. There are a lot of good ads. You don't even recall who the sponsor was. But for Rocket Mortgage, it really brought it home. They were they were good ads. I'm sure they'll do more. Tracy Morgan worked out really well for him. Yeah, what about the halftime show this year compared to other halftime shows and compared to the ads? Well, so um, I, I usually, you know, after being so committed to the, the watching the commercial breaks, take my own little bathroom break during the game. But I, <laughs> I, took a, I came back for the halftime, and I don't know what was happening there. I was just dizzy during it. And I know Pepsi paid a lot of money, and the performance artist paid an extra $7 million for all of the effects. But I think it was very forgettable as a halftime when you think of having Madonna and Paul McCartney in the past and, you know, uh, Prince and all of these other great artists. I think we're going to forget the weekend. Yeah. Well, this year, again, a weird year. Some people think that the whole panoply of ads, uh, regardless of the individual excellence of some of them, were kind of awkward. Uh, For one thing, I mean, we've just gone through and we're still going through it, the coronavirus pandemic. And yet there was an eerie absence of any acknowledgement (laughs) that that was actually happening. It's like everything is normal, like the ads tended to sound like they could have been done in 2017 or 2009. Yeah, people are desperate for normalcy. And I, I think that, that was really reflected in the ads. No one wanted to go out and really address, you know, the, the problem nature. Again, the Jeep ad was probably as far as we go. We looked at all the ads. The MSU professors gathered our 24th year, rated all the ads. This year, compared to other years, they were slightly below average uh, for where you would be. It, it, you're right, it could have been any year, although we saw more online sort of connections than we've seen in the past. i tell you, I would hate to be the Amazon folks because they aired a pretty good ad in the last two-minute break, 
But because of the game, I don't think many people got there. Yeah. <laughs> Folks were tuning out. Yeah. And so that's a, you know, that was $20 million flushed down the toilet. <laughs> oh, Listen, I could ask you still more, honestly. Uh, it's fascinating. Every year, Bob Colt, you do a great job of telling us uh, what we saw. Uh, we saw it with our own eyes, but, you know, until you explained it, we're not really sure what we saw. And now we know. So thank you, Bob Colt, CEO of Colt Communications, professor of advertising public relations at Michigan State University, for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. We will be back next week with still more.